Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. Welcome back to Sound Effects. My guest is going to be Danny McNamara, lead singer of Embrace. As you know, Embrace have got a new album coming out next month called How to Be a Person Like Other People. And they've got a tour coming up at the end of August into September and the autumn. Danny was keen to do some interviews exploring more of the mental health side of things ahead of this tour. Obviously, he's been very vocal in the past about his experiences with PTSD. A lot is going to come up that I'm sure you are going to relate to and connect to. I've added loads of information in the show notes for getting help in any way that you need. Enjoy it. I am so grateful to Danny for this episode. Get in touch on Twitter or Instagram. Leave us messages, emails, voice notes as you wish. So over to the interview with Danny. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Good. It was really exciting actually seeing the way that you were interacting with everyone on um, on Twitter on that day where you were asking like yeah. uh, who wants to be interviewed and uh, yeah, it's great. Um, it's I, listened, I listened to a couple of episodes. I listened to the uh, Steve Lamack one and I listened to the Adam Feistick one. Did anything strike you about those? I, I, I liked the uh, sort of in-depth discussion. I thought it was uh, good and, and people were being really frank and weren't just giving um, off-the-peg answers to questions, which is uh, what attracts me to podcasts because I've done like thousands and thousands of interviews in my sort of 25 years in a band and... Um, with radio and with podcasts, you can sort of go into more depth, and and I I, uh, I you know I enjoy listening to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, that's what I love about podcasts as well because it feels like you're actually listening into a genuine conversation, and it's two people being very honest. So it's quite intimate. I find that a lot, and it really helps me. There's so many I listen to. Um, and I just love it because it feels like you, you've kind of got company even if you're on your own and you're not on your own. So that's yeah. why yeah, so I like it. So obviously you've got um, an album it's coming out like next month and I was I was listening to you talking on, it was the Twisting Melon podcast the other day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, that was really great because it obviously was a similar theme and there were some things you brought up there that really piqued my interest as well. Um, so one of them was um if if I start with the album you said like how to be a person like other people as an album title yeah talking about how you were watching the Joker the film the Joker yeah yeah yeah. and uh that meeting your wife 10 years ago was partly what helped you also relate to that character in the film Um, Yeah. yeah Yeah. What really struck me about that is how you brought your wife into it and kind of spoke about kind of meeting her and she changed you as a person and you've also, uh, well, helped you as a person and that you became 
a father and you've got another child on the way. She's been born now. She's yeah. been born. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We've got she's uh, two months old. Yeah. How is that as a musician being a dad? Um, well, it, it's it's uh, I think being in a, being in a, a band um, can be quite an isolated existence. It's 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 weird in the sense that it, you don't really have. I mean, I have a good relationship with the other people in the band. But the relationship with the audience isn't any substitute for real intimacy. And um, I was actually watching uh, that Elvis film last night. I finally caved in. I, I wanted to go sit at the pictures, but um, that's just not going to happen with a two-year-old, with a three-year-old and a two-month-old. That's not any time soon. So I watched it last night, and one of the things that um, it's said about Elvis in the film is that he had. He got so much love from his audience, no woman could compete with that. Um, and that's an interesting idea, but I think the truth of it is, is that, you know, however however much an audience cheer, it isn't any substitute for genuine intimacy. Mm. Um, but um, if you've never really had genuine intimacy, then it sort of works as a substitute. So if you're if you're the sort of person, and I certainly was growing up, I had a, a quite a wild imagination, and I would um, kind of shut myself away from reality quite a lot, or certainly escape into my imagination from reality quite a lot. Um, genuine intimacy um, didn't really come natural to me, um, and and so you know at some point the audiences and, and 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 the sort of the the cheer of the audience kind and and the connection that I made with my music did become a substitute um but it's not as good as the real thing you know it's like methadone um rather than the real heroin sort of thing I've never done either but I, to use the analogy um yeah. and um but I didn't really realize that until uh a relationship went really badly um, about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, and I realised that I was a, 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 as much to blame as anyone, if not the most to blame for that relationship going wrong. And, and so I had to do a lot of sort of reflecting and I went to therapy and stuff. Um, and then while I was in therapy, I met my wife and, um, and, and yeah, I've sort of, I've kind of come out the other side. I'm no longer in therapy anymore. Um, and, and, and that journey has been learning just how to be normal, really. How to... The, one of the first things that my therapist said to me is just enjoy just being in the moment and not trying to impress or be somewhere or be something or climb a mountain or achieve something just just she used this word and I hate this word and I hated it before pootle she said just pootle about don't you know just be like everyone else just you know just be in the moment and think you don't have to talk you don't have to do anything just you know you're just one of seven billion other people on this planet and you're not that different from anybody else really and 
And then, and she also said the things that make us all what we are, the things that we've all got in common, they're actually the things that are special about us mm. rather than the things that are different, you know. Like I could point my ability to write songs as a genuine point of difference from the majority of people. But the things we've got in common are so much more incredible than that. You know, writing songs is just, you know, it's good, but it's not, it's not everything. And and so then I started, I started looking at it, because I've been looking at it sort of upside down, really. And I started looking at it in that way. And and my wife sort of joined in and uh, was singing from a similar hymn sheet to my therapist. And uh, and then, yeah, like, like coming to your answer is like, we had children and, there's nothing like having children to get you out of that sort of rock and roll star frame of mind because they don't give a shit, you know. And uh, and and actually, you know, my daughter didn't know I was a singer in a band until a couple of weeks ago when my dad played her uh, us because Glastonbury was on a couple of weeks ago, and we played Glastonbury um, just before David Bowie um, on the main stage. And there was a video of that going around um, at the same time. And my dad showed it to my daughter. And my daughter was like, oh, my God, that's daddy. You know, like, whoa. <laughs> and she, yeah, she can sing all your good, good people now as well. Well, she does the listen to me bit. She, <laughs> she, she, she goes, listen to me. Like that. She gets that bit right. It's really so cute. And yeah, just I think because I'm because I'm so used to sort of life kind of being quite full on with with the band. It's it's all or nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm either switched off and just coasting in the day, you know, like sleeping or or whatever, or I'm on stage or I'm partying, you know. So it's like it's at a zero or ten, and there's no sort of real life really in between. I'm kind of. I've existed quite separately from real life for a really long time and um, having children and a wife who won't tolerate that shit um, has, uh, has, has sort of brought me out of it and it's weird because I can't like if I get too much of it it, it overwhelms me um, so my wife sort of titrates it down and sort of gives it me in little diluted doses and I'm sort of, I'm like one of those dogs that they can't feed initially. So they feed them with a little bit of like cotton wool, a little bit of water. And then eventually, you know, they're eating sausage and chips or whatever, you know, I'm like <laughs> sort of going from just sort of little baby steps initially. 
Yeah. And then now I'm sort of I'm doing those baby steps on my own, and my wife is 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 sort of helping me take bigger steps, and and it's it's a process, but um, yeah. So that makes this album, how to be a person like other people, really. What's really fresh about it is it's like it's me like realizing there's like a real world out there and going shit where have I been for the last 51 years like there's a there's a sense of regret in there a little bit in a sense I feel like I've missed out on enjoying what life would have been like if I'd have known about it (laughs) but but, um yeah uh so that that means that you know it's it's uh, there's a lot of urgency and life in the album because it's like I was blind and now I see is, the, I guess, the easiest analogy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Nice lyric there. That's just made me think of Primal, primal Spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. that uh, moving on up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, well, a few, quite a few other songs before that, you know. There's like yeah. a lot of old gospel songs that had that as well. So yeah. It's not copyright Bobby Gillespie, that one. No. <laughs> suddenly the song came into my mind and it's made sense of the lyric, you know. As you said, it, it was quite moving and that song came in my head and, and it's interesting because what you've just done there is describe context changes your experience of music quite fundamentally. Um, to me, that was a just a sort of joyous song. I didn't think too much about that lyric. And now as you've said that, I'm thinking of it differently already. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just a nice little, um, it just happened really organically, but I really appreciate that, yeah. All right, yeah, cool. saying in your music now you because you are bringing a context to the songs and you're you're explaining a bit about what is behind them and bringing the soul into it and the emotion behind it the humanness of of your experiences and sharing it through the connection with the fans that they pick up on yeah yeah I mean up until now um most of the songs that I've written about love have been about it going wrong or the death of love or grief in some way um which is really funny because a lot of people want to use those songs as they're walking down the aisle wedding songs <laughs> it's like <laughs> well you know I, I wouldn't really pick that one because that's you know that's about the death of a relationship but it's kind of you want the opposite really mm-hmm. and I'd never really written about being in love and and what that felt like I'd only ever written one song before uh, on the first album, a song called That Sort of Change Forever. Um, and um, and I guess that's because I, ha- I don't really, I didn't really know what, what it meant, you know. Um, and, um, you know and, and, and so what would also happen is um, my wife would, would say, you know, for instance, on the last album, my wife would say, 
that's a lovely song. What's that about? And I just have to tell her it was about the girl before her, you know, like my ex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, well, where, where are all the songs about me? And I'm like, well, you haven't brought my heart yet. So, you know, like, mm-hmm. hopefully I'll never write a song about you. And, 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 then, and then it just sort of occurred to me what a shame that is. And, um, but it took a while, like, you know, we've, 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 we've been together nearly 10 years now and I started, you know, writing songs about her maybe like two or three years ago. It just started to make sense that that's, that was the core of where I was at. I'd got over the, the grieving and stuff, my last relationship, and that allowed space for me to write about all this new stuff and, um, I've said this before, but like the, the first ever song I wrote was about how how um, how hard relationships and love can be. A song called Retread, and in it I said, um, "I find myself redeemed because no one's seen the bad in me. I've been where I've been and not turned to leave." But then I met my wife, and she saw all that, and she didn't give a shit. She stayed put, you know. She didn't turn and leave, and. Um, and we worked through it and, um, you know, I, I, and We Are It, which is the new single, is like a bookend to that, to retread. Um, sort of retread is the beginning of that story and We Are It is where I ended up, you know, handsome one who didn't turn to leave. Now I found myself redeemed Cause no one's seen the bad in me Or been where I've been And I've And there's genuine joy in that. Um, And um, it's weird because genuine joy for me doesn't slap me over the face like a massive cheer from a crowd does or like, you know, the the lifestyle that I've led has done, you know, I've sort of chased the next big fix, if you like, um, through everything apart from drugs, really. Um, And... But it sort of feels like it comes from a gentler, stiller, deeper place that feels almost more profound and more um, more timeless and unmoving. And it's like it's just there. Like where there used to be anxiety and where I used to feel like I was running, I'm now still. And, And... I wouldn't say necessarily at peace, but more at peace, you know, more content. Um, And it's like uh, one of the one of the one of the things is like I went I went traveling with my wife and we we got to this uh, place in in called Cappadocia, um, 
and there's this wonderful view uh, just went on for forever, almost like the Grand Canyon. Um, and, we, and my wife was just sat there looking at it. And I sat there and looked at it for about, you know, a couple of minutes. And then I was like, right, that's good. What are we doing next? Which was always my, is always my thing. Yeah. And she was just sat there and she didn't say anything. And I went and sat next to her. And I was like, oh, are we going to go get something to eat? Or, you know, we're going to do something. And she's like, she just pointed to it again. And I'm like, I know, I've seen it. She's, no, 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 just fucking sit the fuck down. And we just sat down. And I just stayed there. And then it sort of dawned on me, like, I wasn't living in the moment at all. I hadn't been. And then the moment just sort of came along. And it was like this gentle moment, like, you know. And... um and I've missed all of them. Never really had any of them. Because I've been chasing big moments, you know, like. And important moments don't always announce themselves in that shallow way. Important moments, in fact, more often than not, important things are really still and small and deep inside you. Um, and so, yeah, I, obviously, you know, learning all this in my sort of, late 40s, early 50s has been uh, a bit of a revelation and so it's given me a lot of stuff to write about song-wise and lyric-wise and yeah. Hearing you speak, there's so, there's a quality in how you talk as a person to what I recognise in the music because you you talk about what well, I experience and a lot of people obviously experience your music as quite rousing it's very emotive very rousing very emotional and a very connected experience and you, there was something it was again in that podcast the other day you, you described it and I wrote it down so I'm gonna just find okay yeah sure because okay. <laughs> um, it, it, I wanted to mention that um Yeah, you said the best songs are the ones that scream, you're not alone. And you said it's all about the feeling you get. And um, there's, I, I, that's what I wanted to connect to in what you just said there, because you're talking about your own experience. But in hearing it, what I hear again is you're talking to people. You, you, you're kind of um, sharing this is what it's like for me and us and we yeah, yeah, yeah. giving a sense of hope and and a, a roadmap in a way for people yeah. and it's really special and it it, it I, I, I really do and I think um that comes across in the songs for sure and, and I think for me that that's that's what it's all about is that um and it's almost like it's not a conscious, it, it was never really a conscious intention. But I think that being in a band, because I wasn't really connecting intimately on a one-to-one -one level in real life, the art, being in a band writing songs, sort of became my way of making that connection. Um, like, um, you know, I got, I became, um, a good songwriter because I needed to be because it, it's it's the way that I connect to everyone else yeah. and meaningful human connection is the thing that you know it, on, on the is it Maslow's 
pyramid of needs where like you know you need to eat and breathe and all that but if you don't have meaningful connection all those other things are meaningless you know and um you know there's that thing when they say that babies die if they're never touched if they're never loved you know it's that it's that basic need uh, which is what the last album was about love is a basic need um but yeah it's 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 sort of you know like like a blind person has really good hearing you know uh it's like like someone who can't make meaningful human connections in real life will probably do something really good artistically because that's their need it's like a, it's it's a need to get the jump leads together yeah um and so that's the real that's the real place that the songs come from i'm singing until something says it to me in a way I could never do with my own normal speaking voice in real life. Um, and then I want to share that. And, and, and it's a really instinctive process where basically I just sit there with a guitar or a piece of music that Richard or, or one of the band members has written and, um, and just sing until I hit that place where I feel like, right, this is... I'm connected now, I'm connected to it. Um, and it's like connecting to it and then trying through then producing the song and working on the lyrics and stuff, trying to translate that so an audience gets it. Because, and the best stuff is when I'm connected to the, the, the source, you know, like the, the idea and it all comes out in one go, like fireworks was really quick and look as you are was really quick but um sometimes it can take years to get that that initial uh, hit of inspiration into something that people will get like ashes took two or three years um someday on our fourth album took 15 years you know so sometimes it's a real like process but throughout it all you have in your mind and in your heart and your head what that's what that idea did for you and until you can hear it coming out of the speakers then it's not done you know yeah that that comes across as well because you 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 talk about how you know as a band you were together from 93 i think a good a good few years before you were even signed and um and the process involved the hard graph that you describe in getting to the place where you could become what you wanted to be or to write the kind of music you wanted and the time that you've given yourselves to to really do that and and get the get it right so the end the end result and the impact on everyone isn't just fluke it's it's hard work <laughs> yeah uh, i like to think it's not fluke yeah. <laughs> um, i mean there's a certain amount of rolling of the dice in the music industry because you never know if there's quite a lot of gatekeepers particularly in england like if if the big radio stations don't play uh, um if the bag, big magazines don't go for it then yeah. a lot of people really don't get the chance to to, to hear you certainly for new bands um, it's it's not really the case for us because people, you know, we're, we're a name now. So I, I like to think that, you know, if we put out a record, enough people will get to hear it to find out if it's any good, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it, is, uh, it, it, is really, it is really difficult to sort of get the stuff that you want out there. So, 
you don't want to dilute it. You want to, you, you know, what would be horrible is if we put out ashes before it was ready and it wasn't ashes anymore. It wouldn't be ashes anymore. It'd be like a song with a really good verse and no chorus, which is what it was for ages. And then, then once you get the chorus, it's like, ah, right. And then once you uh, put the floor, the floor drum beat under it, it was like, that's when I started feeling really fearful because I thought, oh, my God, we're going to make it again, you know. Um, because we'd been dropped by our record company before, just before we released that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of bands, a lot of people would have thought it's all over, you know. Um, uh, but then when when we did that song in the rehearsal room, we youth thought, oh, it's going to happen again. And you never know, because radio might not have played it and blah, blah, blah. But fortunately they did and, you know, we're still around. Was that an exciting thought or a dread when you said it's going to happen? Well, it's weird. It's weird. I was talking about this yesterday, but it's weird because um, there's sort of like this sense that it's like you're an elephant and you know your time's up, so you start walking to your graveyard, you know, like when when you've done something that's really good, it's great, you know, it's exciting, but also, like, you've done it now. Like, your sense of purpose, the struggle to get something that's good is over momentarily because you've got something, you know. We've done it. Now what do you do? Like, you know, it's like, because particularly when, when you're in the trenches and you're trying to write a great album, you're trying to get a new record deal, it's all all to play for again. There's obviously like you're against the wall, your back's against the wall, but there's real excitement and purpose. And there's like a, there's like a real, like, you're all like uh, soldiers in the trenches, you know. But then when you're victorious, what does a soldier do then? You know, when, if, when you've won a war, what do you do? You know, it's like, fucking, I can shoot a gun, but like, you know, that's no good anymore. No one needs shooting. So I'm just going to, you know, and, and quite a lot of people find that really difficult arriving yeah. You know, when, when it's all about the journey, yeah. it's really difficult. Um, um, you know, there's been a few times when we've arrived and, 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 and what you, the main thing that hits you is that it's not the answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you think, and I think a lot of people who search for fame or whatever, or, you know, is it like you think that, you know, you create, a, or, or artists who create a work of art, you think, I'll do something and and it'll be great and then I'll be happy. And it's like, nope. You did you did something, it's great, but you're still you, you've still got all the same problems. You're still, you know, and and that's quite a wake-up call that like success, commercial success definitely isn't the answer. But even artistic success is only really a momentary answer. Because you do, you know, for for maybe a few days, you feel on top of the world. You feel like, you know, you feel like you've been chosen. This is what this is why you were born. This is this is my purpose. But then you go back to just being you again, struggling to write the next one, and and it's like, what is the point in all that? You know, um, is there a point? And 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 I guess because. Until very recently, until, until really I met my wife, I was sort of married to the band in a way. Like it was 95% of my bandwidth is a band. Um, you know, I, 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 
I sort of went up and down with the band, you know, and I definitely, I definitely didn't have any sense of balance in my life. Um, so, yeah. Say a bit more. It seemed like you wanted to say a bit more there. I got really. I don't want to repeat myself. Like I, I sort of talked about that in another with someone else. I'm trying to give you fresh answers. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to just talk <laughs> stuff that I haven't said anywhere else. So you're getting, you're getting the good stuff. <laughs> well, I this I I'm really there's a lot I want to unpick from what you're saying because. If I take literally what you just said about purpose, in a way you're talking about purpose and meaning, kind of how you can have all those achievements you've managed to kind of, I guess you are that kind of the archetypal musician story of the, the kind of getting to the top of the mountain, making it and living the, the dream, the so-called dream that people talk about. And then the reality hits you, you've as you've described, like what, what next what now and then it becomes a job and you're an embrace are an example of, of a band that has managed to, to balance that line well and keep going and keep going and keep coming back I just wanted to kind of reflect on that idea of purpose because from what I've understood of you you know when you were at school you said like you kind of obviously people went down that trajectory of doing their A-levels and then, or, or GCSEs A-levels, and then deciding to get jobs. Some went to university, some went to Halifax, I think you said, like, you know, sorts of things. And for you, you had a sense You've been of, stalking me, haven't you? No, <laughs> I've just been trying to do my research. Really well. I, know, so I always good. worry, right. I always worry yeah. that, you know, I want to make sure that I'm able to get into something where um, I've been stalking you too we're all good oh, we're all friends here <laughs> brilliant um I think yeah. everyone does it a little bit don't they? everyone like when they're meeting someone new or they've got an interview or wherever they do a little bit of internet stalking before they start so they can figure out what the fuck they're yeah. gonna do yeah it's fine yeah, exactly <laughs> now I'm wondering <laughs> what you know about me but yeah <laughs> um, it was just to say like um I, I really wanted to explore that a little bit because you, it, it seems to me that from that age, and I really recognize it, and I'll explain in a moment, um, being that sort of in your late teens and thinking about the world and what you want from it, and thinking the way you described it, it was like you wanted more or something else, or you, want, yeah. you didn't want a kind of standard nine to five yeah jumping straight into marriage and kids there was something more you yeah. wanted I'm wondering yeah. what it is at that age you think what was it you were looking for um I, I it's it's weird it on some level when you're a teenage boy everything is about sex like <laughs> Okay. Uh, you know, you've just got to own that. Like, <laughs> there's so much testosterone going through your body. So, a key moment in my life, because I, 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 I had a, more success than most people when I was younger. Like, you know, sort of started snogging when I was about eight, and you know, mm-hmm. kind of um, unusually developed in that in 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 that uh, part of life, but. Like every, like a lot of people, when I got into my teens, I got spotty and awkward. 
and I was really tall. I'm six foot two, and I think I was six foot two by the time I was 15, you know. Um, but, you know, death lifting, I think I was like 10 stone, you know, uh, which when you're six foot two is not a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I still sort of did all right with women, but there were like other boys doing better. And I remember going to this party and this girl wasn't interested in me at all because it was this other guy who was more attractive or whatever. And I just thought, I, I don't like this. I don't like, like being at this party and no one being interested in me. So I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back and everyone's going to be interested in me. There was like an ele- really an element of that. Like it's really an element of I'm going to be a rock star. And this little issue here is going to take care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> and it did. Yeah. But, but um, I really think that that was a part of it when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then even going back before that, going back to like being six years old when, when Elvis died, which was a big moment for me in my life. Um, so obviously it wasn't sexual. Um, it was like he died when I was six in 1977. And... Um, just seeing him he was on the tv all the time because because of his death and just watching all those films I just thought he was the coolest person ever mm-hmm. and my grandma got me a leather jacket and um and, and I used to do Elvis impressions on the street for for like um whatever change or sweets or a bit of string that anybody had in their pockets and um so yeah so Music has, and then going back before that, like my mum used to sing to me to get to sleep and some of like like my earliest sort of most sort of self-soothing memories are of music. So so music is like connected to me from like being being a really small child and some of my most, because when I was a kid, I was quite, because I've got quite a, I've got a wild imagination, I'm just going to say that, you know, because I just have. It like, it will go, all over the joint. I'm, I'm, I write for TV at the moment and I get a lot of good ideas. <laughs> yeah. And then my wife is really good at sort of getting them into TV shape. So we're a good team, but um, I get a lot of bad ideas as well. But I, I get a lot, Well, let's just say I get a lot of ideas and then whether they're good or bad is like up to other people to decide, I guess. Um, and yeah, I just, just, but having that wild imagination as a kid really tormented me because I'd just think about monsters all day. I, I used to like, we used to have these curtains in my bedroom when I was like two, three, four years old. And the light would shine through them in the morning before anybody else was up. And I'd just see all these monsters' faces in the curtain and I wouldn't dare get out of bed because I'd think that the monster was going to come and get me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mum would sing to me whenever I was scared and it would make me feel better. So that connection, then the Elvis connection, then the desperate teenager just trying to get laid connection. And then just feeling like I wasn't really connected to the, re- the rest, you know, like I've just been, like I was talking earlier on, I wasn't really getting out of life. You know, I didn't enjoy going out. I didn't really socialize that much. I didn't have that many friends. Um, I've got, I've got like one best friend who's been my friend since I was like six. Um, 
mm. and we're still best mates now. And I've got my family who I'm really close to. And I have some friends, but not very many, you know. Um, like most people, during the pandemic, one of the things that really, really struck me was everyone really missed the social aspect of, of their lives. And I really didn't. Mm. You know, I kind of enjoyed just being able to be on my own in my room in my house with my wife and kid and not have to deal with the outside world. And, and there was a sense for me, like, of, like, that made me feel really sad that I'd been, I, I must have been missing out because, like, people, you know, not being able to go out and not being able to see their friends and stuff is a massive deal for a lot of people. I'm like, why well, I want some of that. Why am I missing that? Like, you know, so I really felt like I was missing out. So I've, I've, I've forgotten what your question was. I'm sorry. It was about about being that age and kind of the, I was interested in the psychology of it because you you you're, you're, you just described kind of the trajectory of what led you to a point of feeling like you wanted something different from your life. Everyone else was kind of off. Yeah, yeah. You connected it to kind of well, it partly connected to getting getting the girls and the women and then feeling like if I if I become a rock star. I'll come back and uh, and people will want to, by the sounds of it, people yeah. will, will want to be around me again and all of those kind of things. Yeah. But the, the funny thing is, is like, it really didn't work out like that. Like, um, I started in the band sort of when I was 17, 18, and we didn't get a record deal till I was 26. So I was basically just in my bedroom for eight years while everybody else was going out and living their life. Yeah. So I really didn't um, didn't get women and all that sort of stuff at all, you know. Um, it wasn't really until I, I had a relationship when I was 26 and then I came out of that relationship in my early 30s. I was like 31 or something, 32. It wasn't until then that I was then able to sort of, um, you know, sow my wild oats, as they say, <laughs> <laughs> which I did, I did. Uh, I definitely made up for lost time. Um, uh, but then, and, and then that wasn't the answer either, you know, because it, it, that wasn't meaningful human connection either. It's like, um, it's it's only, it's not, like I say, it's only been in the last 10 years that I've really realised that, you know. Yeah. Went from getting strokes, as they say, from an audience to then getting strokes from casual or, you know, less than ideal relationships to then, uh, finally, you know, getting the real deal, you know. What I can hear in your description is like throughout your life, particularly in that period and even beyond, there's a feeling of like that you're missing out somehow in comparison to your peers and then thinking, how can I put that right or how can I get there? And then doing something to adjust. And then sort of getting it, but then thinking, oh, now the goalposts have moved. <laughs> That's not actually. It's, it's not. Re- I'm not really sort of thinking about it in relation. It's weird. It's not. It's not. I'm not thinking about it in relation to other people. I'm thinking about it in relation to like I'm not happy yet. It's yeah. not for me personally, you know. Yeah. So, um, for a while, I was happy just concentrating on the band, and. And you know, making great songs and the whole roller coaster of being in a band that everyone loves at the beginning. Mm. 
and then and then at some point it's like it's like um you can sort of live on it but it's not really completely enriching it sort of takes as much as it gives out of you and it's not you know like my my personal life and my work life and then your spiritual life and your emotional life and all these different aspects of your life like all get subsumed into just one thing and you sort of put all your eggs in that one basket and um and you're missing that even if that's 10 out of 10 you're only ever going to get like 20% out of your life because that should only really make up 20% or 30% of your life mm-hmm. um and also that even if that is amazing it starts to suffer because it needs to feed off things happening to you in real life you know you can't create in a vacuum um so yeah i i I, it's been like i've i think i've always been restless and um and questioning and i'm always looking for to grow um and 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 different and and you know, sort of break the mold and reset, you know, sort of grow and grow. Um, like a sort of snake sloughing its skin or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, re- really like it's plugged into being in a band quite well in the sense that each new album hopefully is a new take on what's going on, or certainly the last few have been that way. Um and and that's regenerative, you know. My my real life is 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 um, never been better, and and the worry is when you start out that if if you suddenly get happy, you stop writing good songs because you won't need to do them anymore. That that need for connection's gone if you're getting connection elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's like that hasn't happened because I've got so much more to say now. It's like fuck there's all this new world has opened up you know this 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 20 percent here has always been great but now i've got this 20 percent and this 20 percent and this 20 percent starting to fill up slowly um and they're all cross-pollinating and so yeah and then also like the knowledge that time is running out you know like i'm over 50 now so everything's more urgent than ever so yeah you still have that sense of urgency. Yeah. Yeah. The way, the way you're describing it, it's like you had a fear. So you have a fear, but then actually what you discovered is it doesn't end a new door opens and that each phase of your life doesn't mean that that part of your life that you had, it doesn't mean your life is over. It's just a new door that you've gone down and there's a yeah. more set of doors. That, I think, is such an inspiring message I think for, for um, not just musicians, for anyone, but especially for musicians, because I'm guessing that's, that's a very private anxiety that a lot of musicians have especially young ones starting out who maybe feel like the way you described when you were young and feel those fears of time running out, wanting to find meaning, being scared of what will happen if they get happy. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think people share that and it's, it's, a, it's a freeing 
statement you're making that actually you don't have to fear that because what's on the other end is is actually more freeing in some way. Well, well, it's like you get to a place where you're happy and then it's inspiring for two reasons. One is like, why the fuck has it taken me so long to get here? Like, God, I've been missing this for so long. So there's regret to channel. (laughs) Then there's like... um, oh my God, there's all this new stuff that I didn't know about. So there's all that to channel. And then equally, you get there and it's like, right, what's next? I understand that now, but like there's probably something else I don't know that I need to. So there's another mountain to climb. So it doesn't, I don't think it ever ends. I don't think, I don't think you do get to that place where you're the elephant going to your graveyard because you, you know your time's up. Um, hopefully not. Anyway, I think I think that, always there's always the next thing um and uh certainly on the last couple of albums for me um it's been it's been about breaking through a barrier and that was there and and seeing then all this wonderful stuff i'd never seen before and wanting to write about it and i think probably the first album was breaking through a barrier because I had PTSD when when I was 19, between 19 and 22. And um, and it wasn't until I sort of had that that I was able to connect. And before then, everything that we tried to write just sounded like a hodgepodge of all our influences, like bands like Conda Bonnie Man and U2 and The Cure and PJ Harvey and all that. And um, and then I got ill, and the songs I was writing sounded like me, and they didn't sound like anyone else. Um, and so I guess always it's been like a case of breaking through a mold that's there, and then expanding, and then when that sets, break that again, and then expand again, and then when that sets, break that again, and so it's just a process, and. Um, you know, a never-ending one, I think, probably. You talked about your PTSD there, and obviously that's a huge part of what you, you've spoken about it before, you've explored it, and um, you said it was from an accident, and is, is that something that you would want to share with? Yeah, yeah, sure, definitely, yeah. I, I mean, I'm always happy to talk about it because, um, well, uh, you know, when, when I first talked about it, no one really mentioned it at all. Like, you knew about it from uh, that song, um, uh, oh, what's it called? The one about Vietnam, uh, 19. The, you know that old song. What Axel Rod is it? Axel Axel F? Is, oh, no, right. I don't know. Nineteen. Um, I don't know. Hang on a minute. I'll, I'll just uh, just let me quick. Uh, song nineteen. Song nineteen. Vietnam. Uh, just just quickly look it up. Find out who it's by. Paul Hardcastle. Um, he wrote a song called 19, um, which was about um, uh, Vietnam and, um, yeah, Paul Hardcastle. And, and 
a really startling statistic is that more soldiers have died from taking their own life after war than they're having war because the PTSD is just so horrific and so debilitating and so isolating. And so that was all I knew about it is that like soldiers get it and it's horrible. And that was it, you know, and I'm not a soldier and I've not been anywhere near a war zone or anything. Um, and I had it and it is it's fucking horrible. <laughs> oh my God. Like, it's like, um, I mean, when, when I had it, it's like 30 years ago. And so the understanding of it was very, very small. Um, but uh, now the understanding of mental health is so much more advanced than it was back then. Um, and stigma that was attached to mental health back then so much worse than it is now. Back then, basically, the only representation of mental health in, you know, in TV or whatever was like, if you were a psychopath or, you know, some sort of danger to yourself or other people. Um, and that's what I thought. I thought, am I having these horrible thoughts? I must be a psychopath. I must be a monster. Um, I need to be locked up. And um, the only comfort I could get was knowing that I'd take my own life before I hurt anyone else. But then I used to think maybe death isn't the end and maybe the devil's waiting for me at the other side when I die. And so what horror is that going to be? And and so there was no escape, really, you know. Um, and it was just that wild imagination that I had just was in control and it was like real Jacob's Ladder stuff um, as horrific as I could imagine with my mild imagination but worse because it was unrelenting and like it was on sort of 10 seconds after waking up in the morning until I finally sort of crashed to sleep about eight hours later I was only awake for about eight hours a day because it was just exhausting I was having like 15 panic attacks a day um, and it was really horrendous and as bad as it gets. Um, and But what I want people to know is that the accident I had that triggered it was really minor. Like, I wasn't a soldier. I, I, no one blew up. I didn't see any bodies. You know, there wasn't any real horror, really. I was just in a car driving towards the motorway and before I even got to the motorway, I was, the, the cinema was right next to the motorway where, where we live. And um, I was just driving out of the car park going about 10 miles an hour. And the big end on the car went. So it just stopped like that. And, and I, you know, I went forward and mm. I think I might have hit my head, but not badly. Mm. And, you know, and I was shaking and the, the, the car was just dead, stopped in the middle of the road, in the middle of the car park. And that was it, you know, nothing else, nothing else. Um, and uh, my dad had to come and pick me up um, and I got home and I was lying in bed with my girlfriend and um, and I just started shivering and I didn't know why. I was like, you cold? And she's like, no, it's boiling. And I was like, I just couldn't stop shivering. 
didn't understand it, fell asleep. And then the next morning I woke up and my thoughts were my own. And that was it. And I thought, am I going to go mad? And the worry that you have compounds it. And then the thoughts race even more. And within about three days, I was just a wreck, complete wreck. Um, But because I thought if I told anyone about it, they'd lock me up and throw away the key and I'd never see my mum and dad again. I didn't tell anyone for ages. And I just suffered in silence. And then I told my mum and dad and they didn't know what to do. And in the end, I think I was like, there was a news item on TV and I was just, I was just screaming about something that I was imagining in my head, which was really horrible. And my dad stood up and I've got a younger brother and he was about, I think he was about nine at the time or something. And it it was scaring him. And uh, my dad said, I can't deal with this anymore. We need to get him to a doctor. And so my mum, which was your ask, yeah, I was. My mum carried me. She couldn't fucking carry me now. <laughs> she carried me to the car and took me to the doctor. And the doctor said, you've got a phobia of evil, which I didn't. I didn't at all. But he didn't have a fucking clue. You know, people didn't have a clue back then. But just a doctor saying that made me feel sort of slightly better because it sort of made sense. And he arranged for me to see a psychiatrist, but because we didn't have any money back then um it was like a real case of like you know we need to do this on the nhs and but my mum said no we can afford it let's do it but the doctor must have got mixed signals there so it was three months before i got an appointment um to see someone privately um and then when I went to see the psychiatrist, it was like 40 quid an hour, which shows you how long ago it was. Um, and uh, I said, um, my mum says, if you make me be- feel better in half an hour, can we just pay for half an hour? Like, <sighs> just give me a minute. Because we were so skint. And uh, the psychiatrist went, well, let's see how we get on. <laughs> and uh, and obviously, you know, it took a long time. And, and, we, and, we, and we, you know, I went to see him privately. Um, and, uh, and I got better, you know, eventually I got better. He said a load of stuff to me in the first hour that made complete sense. Um, we looked at my life and um, there'd been like four or five things that all happened within a few days of each other that meant that I was sort of a, a completely a, a prime candidate for um, for this like moment if you like um, we'd just moved house my grandma had just died um, my our old best player's brother had just committed suicide. Um, 
And there was a whole list of like uh, half a dozen things that had all happened within like two weeks. Um, and, uh, and he said, well, that's, you know, that's a tinderbox right there, you know, and, and, and this little accident that you've had has just, it's just been that last ingredient to just connect it all. Um, and that made sense. And then he said, and because my, my worry, I went in and I said, I think I'm a psychopath. I need locking up. I couldn't believe that he'd given me his home address to, uh, to conduct this therapy. When I got to the, um, when I got to his house, his house is quite a big house. And uh, it was like that moment in Psycho when you're looking at the big house, like, you know, sitting by the window, Norm, and I was like looking at him and I could see him through the window with his wife and kids. And I thought, I almost felt like I had the night vision goggles and I was like, you know, gonna, he was going to be my next victim. Mm-hmm. And um, it just... You know, when one of the first things I said to him is that I said, like, can't believe you've given me a home address. Do you, don't you know what I'm capable of? And and he just sort of chuckled and said, I'm sure I'll be fine. And and sort of saying it out loud, it sounded really silly. But my head was in such a, a tormented state that it felt real to me before I said it out loud. And then, you know, subsequently still felt emotionally real to me after I left, you know. Um, but in that moment, and, and, and so like little cracks started appearing in the, in the uh, facade of this monster that was, that was bearing down on me. Um, and he said, um, do you find, you know, you think you're going to kill someone, do you find yourself avoiding things like a knife or... Uh, you know, a scarf draped over a chair. And I thought, a scarf draped over a chair? Fucking hell, I've never thought of that. I've never avoided a scarf draped over a chair, but, oh, yeah, you could strangle someone with something like that. And I'm like, I just imagined how much worse all the other people that came to see him that were avoiding scarves draped over chairs, and I'm sure it made those feel better. So he was going to do that for me as well. Mm. And then he said, do you find yourself double-checking stuff? And... And uh, you know, to try and reassure yourself, and 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 just reaching me by sort of describing, almost like a weatherman gains himself, um, like kudos by telling you what the weather's like today, don't they? They always like the go like, and today's weather is this, and we go, we fucking know what today's weather is, mate. We're not watching for that. We can see out the fucking window. And then he goes, oh, this is tomorrow's weather. And it's like, oh, yeah, it follows that if you know what the weather's like today, you're going to know what it's like tomorrow. It's like, bullshit, it does. It's always 50-50. They never know. So, but he was doing that. But in a way, because he was saying stuff to me that I hadn't really talked to anyone about. Yeah. It was like, he's not just telling me what the weather's like today. It's not something that anyone can see. He knows what he's talking about. And so I was like, Right, there's a logical way out of this. And I'm quite a driven and determined person, but all that meant with the PTSD was I was sort of permanently mentally arm wrestling myself and losing because you can't fucking win because where you, you, where you can look at you always win because you're only fighting yourself or you always lose because you're expanding yourself, fighting something that's just as good as you. Um, but what happened with 
the uh, psychiatrist is he was on the he, he helped with the arm wrestling on, on the good side so now there were two of us fighting back uh, and it took a while it took a few years I was I was in therapy with him for um, on and off for about six years um, before I got completely better um, but he, he would say stuff like he talked about how uh, quite often young mothers, like teenage mothers and young mothers, would have like horrific feelings of wanting to kill their child because it just screaming all night and you know just drive them around the bend. And they would go to him and they would say, "Oh my god, I think I'm going to kill my child." And it's like you're not. You're just terrified that you're going to because you've been imagining it, and it's the last thing that you do in a way, which is which is why, why you're so scared of it. If you were going to do it, you wouldn't be, you know, people who do do that stuff, it's not the, their biggest fear, you know. Um, and so all that makes sense to me. Um, and, and, but sort of because I write for TV, I've been sort of looking into it more recently. And it wasn't really just straight PTSD that I had. That's just what they called it back then. It was more like pure O that I had. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they, they didn't have that name back then. They didn't have it. So, yeah. When you were describing it there, that's, my mind went there. I thought, oh, it sounds so much like that. And you're right, because there was so little understanding at the time. People talked about OCD in very specific ways. Um, and in more recent years, they've come to understand that it's um, these intrusive thoughts, what you were just describing there, intrusive thoughts ultimately that inform the experiences of OCD and the puro where you're, you're ruminating on fears of becoming, doing something like that, like what you said, fear of harming someone or yourself and avoiding those scenarios. And, yeah, and I'm thinking about the time you would have gone so that you were 19, you said, so that was like yeah. early 90s? No, uh, 1988. 1988. 89, 90, yeah, so around there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was born in 1970. yeah. So I, I can only imagine that, yeah, no one, um, there would have been no recourse to understand it because there wouldn't have even been internet to Google or... Yeah, yeah, there wasn't any. I, I always remember as well just thinking that if someone in NME or something like that talked about it, yeah. I would have felt like I had someone who understood. And so that was what made me come forward and talk about it, you know. Um, I saw Stephen Fry uh, talk about bipolar on Twitter, yeah. I think it was, um, and Stan Collymore talking about depression. and. And I just thought, no one's talking about PTSD or, you know, as I now sort of more understand it. So I'll talk about that. And and what happened then was, like, the floodgates really opened. Like, the, the, the tweet that I did sort of went viral. And um, uh, and and people like the Samaritans got in touch and mine got in touch and, and Black Dog and, and various other um, mental health has got in touch and and I started advocating for them and not not really doing anything but just being prepared to talk like this you know yeah. um 
I mean, I don't think I've ever quite talked like this, but you know, you're, you're just maybe really good at this. <laughs> but um, um, I've all, I'm always, I'm always completely willing to be totally open um, because I come from a position of strength now. You know, I'm, I'm married with two kids. My life is quite happy. You know, I've got a lot of things sorted. Uh, and so I don't feel as vulnerable as I did when I was younger. You know, when I was younger, I didn't want to talk about it because of the stigma that was attached. But then when I saw Stephen Fry and Stan Collymore coming out, I just thought, fuck it. I don't care what people say about me. I need to do this. Yeah. Because if I don't, you know, there, there might be people out there who are really suffering now that if they know that they're not on their own, they won't be suffering as much. Um, and that really was the case. Like, I've had so many messages and uh, emails and DMs and stuff um, from people saying that thanks to you, I went to the Samaritans, or thanks to you, I talked to my wife, or you know, whatever it is. Um, and 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 saying to me that I literally saved their life, which is fucking huge, you know, huge, like. Um, I, I, I still have bothered getting my head around it. But, you know, all I would say is if anyone's watching this who's in the public eye, who has anything, anything at all on a human level that people are going to be able to relate to and feel less alone, just fucking get it out. What have we got to lose? You're going to be dead soon anyway. Like, fucking, you know, we're all, I think we're here, like, as a species to, make meaningful connection is the, is the most precious, important thing that we do. And, you know, giving people your real shit and, and saying how it really is and going there. And sometimes that's dark. Like I've done dark things in my life. I've done things I'm not proud of like anyone. Um, but I'm prepared to fucking talk about it, you know, wherever it is, because I'm, I'm at peace with myself now in a sense. I'm not running and hiding anymore, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to share something with you because you, you, when you were talking about your trajectory to meeting that psychiatrist, by the way, I'm so relieved for you that you had that psychiatrist. And yeah, yeah, I know. And a lot of people have had, people have seen psychiatrists and also, like, again, fucking TV, the truth hope is that psychiatrists aren't very good you know yeah. and it's just it's just bullshit man like that psychiatrist was a fucking savior you know he, he was amazing um and and i can't speak highly enough of it as a profession because um i went on again about 10 years ago you know when when, when that relationship went wrong just before i met my wife and 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 she saved me as well, you know, in a completely different way. Um, so I, I I know that some people have tough experience with it, and I'm sure there are good ones and bad ones. But just stick at it because talking, even if it's not to a psychiatrist, even if it's just to someone, even if it's just to a complete fucking stranger, just talking, even if it's just to your fucking self, just talk, just get it out, you know. Yeah. Um, write it down, like expressing it really does help sort of take the veil off the Wizard of Oz that's there, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, 
So true. I also, uh, when you described calling Samaritans, um, you said that you, sorry, not calling Samaritans, you, you were describing about feeling like if you ended your life, you would meet the devil. Yeah. I wanted to share with you how common that was because I used to be a Samaritan helpline listener. Right. Right. Um, the number of people who said that exact thing was probably one of the biggest insights for me at the time. I, I did it for about four years. And it's you'd be amazed at how many people have that exact thought process, yeah. like that they're they want to die but they don't just in case there's a hell yeah Yeah. it's incredible and and as you say because people don't talk about it together there's you've got thousands of people sharing that same thought process but hiding on their own thinking they're on their own exactly and then the second you know that actually not only are you not alone but it's so common and the yeah. person next to you that you've been sitting on the bus with for the last however many years also has that thought and so on and so on is so empowering and important and it speaks straight to what you're just saying there that yeah. talking about it but in a way where you're connecting and sharing that experience can be so healing yeah mm. yeah and I think as well it's like you don't have to share the whole experience yeah. like just share what you feel comfortable with and it almost in a way if you don't feel comfortable sharing the experience at all make up a fucking story and just tell that just yeah. talk yeah. you know obviously it's better if you share your real experience it's better if you can share some of it but even just making up a story say it's about a friend or you know whatever just get talking and find some relief on your own level you know what you're comfortable with um, and, and what's great as well is that a lot of these um, places you can go, like Samaritans and stuff like that, they have like texts you can do or you can do it online and you don't have to talk to someone because I think a lot of people find that quite intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, it's like I didn't tell the whole story straight away because I wasn't really comfortable with the idea that it was next to nothing that happened to me that led to this thing. Um, I did have, like, it was like a sort of near-death experience in a, in, a, in a near car accident, which is how I described it. But I didn't describe how trivial the car accident seemed because I wasn't comfortable with saying, I've really suffered, but look, it's this silly little thing. But now I'm really comfortable about it because it's important that people realise it. You don't have to be a fucking soldier and explosions going off for you, to, for, you, for you to have something major happen like that. I had a friend who was on the eighth floor of this building and they went to go and get in the lift and the lift wasn't there. It, it was on the bottom floor, but the doors had opened. Oh, that's one of my biggest fears. Yeah, and, and they didn't they didn't fall down the shaft or anything. Yeah. They just went and then stopped themselves. And that was enough to set them off, you know, because it was like a near-death experience. Your mind goes, oh, my God. Yeah. And although you haven't been injured in any way, is what I'm, as what I suppose I'm trying to say, yeah. and you haven't seen any bodies or, or, or all the horror that is enough 
to, to set a, a, a process in motion. And I think if people realise that, if if they suddenly wake up and they've got weird thoughts or whatever, just think, did you have a really, you know, uh, 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 one of these experiences the day before? And it can be anything. It can be something really trivial. Mm. And and if you did, then then you know you're not going mad. You know, you know that this is just the body processing something that's happened to you that's out of the norm. And um, and so yeah, and so. You know, I guess the older I get, the more confident I get, the more, the happier I am exploring more of the detail of the, of the story, um, you know. Well, you, you described the context of it as well, because you were a specific age. You said that all this, yeah. these things had already happened, like a domino effect. And you yeah. lost someone to suicide as well, which yeah. is, is, a, is a huge deal and I, and I can imagine probably in the same way it wasn't talked about and and it builds up and builds up and then like you said like um it's it was like the straw that broke the camel's back or like the tinderbox the, the last thing so yeah like it can be a small event but on the back of several small yeah yeah but even even as well like you know you might you might just be under a lot of pressure at work or something mm-hmm which, you know, is 99% of people, isn't it? So or you might just be having money worries, which, you know, in the current climate is, you know, or, or just the pandemic, you know, the, the sort of underlying anxiety of that. So it can be, you know, it can be anything. And then just, just this little thing comes along and bursts the bubble and, and suddenly you're on your own without any of your defences and, and, and very vulnerable to to stuff that's... that's I, I, the P, I still call it PTSD just just because you know I've called it that all my life, even though that's not really what it is. Um, um, it's the worst thing by far that I've ever experienced. Worse than you know, nothing else comes close. I mean, when me and my last girlfriend broke up, that was really heartbreaking, and I really suffered, and that was sort of in the same league, but it's still like it was. It was truly horrendous <laughs> like you know um and and you know I can't I mean touch wood I can't imagine um I can't imagine anything worse you know um and I suppose if I could it would have been worse because <laughs> it was just my imagination anyway you know it's like the limits of your imagination are coming after you all day from every angle forever and ever until you know what you know that that's what it was like yeah that's the horrible thing with puro it takes your biggest fear so whatever the thing yeah. you fear the most and then you imagine what could be worse than that and then it will be that and yeah 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 so it escalated really fucking quickly like you know it, it went from um i think it was like fear of swallowing my tongue or uh, forgetting to breathe while I was asleep, um, that there's a voodoo doll of me out there somewhere, that witches are, uh, are going to cast a spell on me, um, that uh, aliens are going to get me, uh, that a psycho is going to chloroform me and take me back to his lair and torture me like American psycho. And then finally, that I'm a psycho and I'm going to do it to my family. Um, 
And then that, I couldn't think of anything worse than that. That was sort of where it peaked. Um, and I, was, I just walked down the street with just every time, you know, and, you know, I'd see like an innocent child or whatever, and I think, eat that child, fuck it, kill it, you know, like bash its mother over the head with it, you know, just all sorts of really horrendous, like, you know, I'd go into church, I went into church, and I just recoil from the holiness of it, like almost like I had the devil inside me and I was possessed, you know, like, fuck, it was horrible. <laughs> in that in a particularly religious environment no no not at all no no Mm. no um my dad's extended family are catholic but they all live in ireland and and we very rarely saw them and my Mm. mum and dad aren't religious at all so no not at all this is because because i know that kind of the, the embodied guilt or the absorbed feelings i know it can happen for people who have been brought up in in very those sort of messages of sin and um, very shame-based, guilt-based sort of religions that you can end up holding it. But as you say, like, it doesn't even have to be that necessarily, just messages from, from um, TV, because you talked about, you know, absorbing messages about psychopaths and things on, on the television. So, yeah, on some level, like, you you absorb those narratives and then imagine yeah. that you were it, yeah. yeah completely it's, it's, it was just from tv and books and stuff and mm. um i read american psych or you know saw um silence of the lambs and all that and and, oh, yeah. and, I, and I just thought yeah i'm that guy that's me and and it seemed completely plausible <laughs> um which i'm laughing now because it's fucking crazy <laughs> like there's no way I wouldn't hurt a fly, you know. I'm the last person in the world, like, which is, I guess, why, you know. So a lot of people, there's that wonderful TV show called Pure, you know, the the one that's about that woman who has Pure, and yeah. Um, yeah, and she, for her, it's much more sexual and humiliation based. Mine wasn't sexual. In fact, um, having sex for those sort of like. You know, those few moments when 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 you reach a climax and stuff, that was like the only moment I felt sane, you know. I felt like the center of the universe, you know. Um and 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 at peace for a few moments, you know. Um but and and so fortunately I I didn't, you know, not none of the things that I was running away from were sexual. It was all horrible macabre violence and you know indiscriminate torture and mayhem and blood and guts and stuff um it was just that um and it got quite because i had it i had it really in earnest for about three years it got quite mathematical like the old sort of things that you'd imagine you know sort of i I guess you'd the, ne- the nearest thing you can imagine to it now is like a film like Saw or Hostel or something like that, you know, torture porn. That stuff kind of ran its course within a few months. And then what it became then was sort of abstracted mathematical versions of that, that that were more horrific. Like imagine if it's this, but it's incremental like this and it goes on for eternity and, and this is what it does to you and to your friends and to, you know, and let's, and there was just all sorts of 
layers and layers and layers of it that I was under. Yeah. And it was like the voice in my head, ironically, was was like a sort of a, a person who's my age, imagining me at my age. Um, and and um, with all the confidence and the power of, of, a, of a man in his sort of 40s or 50s. So this is this is how I'd internalise this sort of demon inside me, if you like, it was me, but a lot older, yeah. basically saying, this is your life now and I'm in control. And it was like, and I was just this scared 19-year-old boy running for my life every day. Yeah, yeah. You imagine, you project yourself into the future, imagine people watching you um, almost like, like there's a Daily Mail headline about you or something like, <laughs> like that. Yeah. 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 You know, well, first of all, I really appreciate you speaking in this open way and, um, you know, sharing the vulnerability of it. I, I wanted to say I really appreciate that. And it's really, it, I think you share something in common with uh, Richard Ashcroft. He was talking about how for a while he was nicknamed like Mad Richard. And it was it was like back in the in the times again as you're talking about that that era, especially in the 90s, yeah. um, where there was so much stigma. And he said like at the time he became a dad and no one was talking about being a father. And in that at that time it was like um being a being a dad was was uncool and he was the only musician he knew that was and now it's become different and people talk about being a father and how great it is there's something I felt like when you were speaking that you both shared in common was sort of daring to go to those difficult places at a time when it wasn't really the infrastructure wasn't there to allow you to do it yeah the bravery of that I really admire it. I was called Mad Richard before I talked about anything, remember? Well, so that's, that's another thing, you know, would they be doing that now? It would never happen now, would it? It would no. be seen as, like, wrong. Ultimately, what happened to me was, is because I had my first child at a certain age, most of the journalists who were writing at the time, they weren't ready for it. So now, now they're all happy, the 40-some, they've planned their families at the right time in their nice little middle-class way that um, now it's all cool being a dad. Oh, dad's fat, that's fashionable now, isn't it? It's all so very, very fashionable to be a dad now. But when I was a dad, I couldn't, they couldn't stop asking me about it. I'm like, am I the only musician ever to have a child? They want the cliche. Like I said, it's like um, to make meaningful human connection, the only way you're gonna do it is if you sort of come out as a human being show people that you are one and fallible and flawed and um and and, and like because I write for TV now we've got like nine shows in development with various production companies and stuff um I've done a lot of exploration of like what it is I want to say and mostly what I want to say is stuff that I experience that I've not seen on TV <laughs> and it's all that stuff that people don't want to dare talk about they don't have the balls to talk about um because that you know no one else has and they don't want to be the first to sort of put their head above the parapet because they're afraid of having it chopped off which is understandable 
Um, and I suppose, you know, Richard Ashcroft and myself and, and others are like, being a singer in a band, putting your head on the chopping block is part of the gig, you know. Um, it, it's like you realise early on that if you don't do that, no one's going to give a shit. You know, you have to give your, you have to give of yourself in your music. Um, it has to mean something. It has to come from your heart. Um, because if it doesn't, why, why would people care? Um, and the good stuff comes from that place and it's an instinctive place. And you sort of have to honour that, I think, in, in, in the songwriting. And I guess, you know, we're both lucky in the sense that we've done that and people have sort of patted us on the back for it, you know, given us applause, given us number one albums, you know, given us big crowds around the world. Um, and so that then hopefully gives you the confidence to come out about other stuff in your life, mm. uh, you know. Whereas, you know, I don't look down on other people who daren't because it's scary, you know, fucking hell. You know, if you're watching this and you've experienced this stuff and you still daren't talk to anyone, fucking, that's not, it's not a bad thing. It's like, it's a human thing. It's a normal reaction. But I just hope that hearing me or hearing Richard or whoever it is, um, helps a little bit you know mm-hmm. and even if you just send a text to someone or just baby steps you know just um yeah just fucking just take a, even the smallest little whatever little baby step it is even if it's just saying to yourself i've got stuff to say i, I need to talk about this even if it's just saying that to yourself and then sitting on it for a few weeks, however, that's enough of a step that you know, your, your brain will know, like you, you'll know, right, I need to talk about this. I should talk about this. Who am I going to talk to? And it's like, you know, some people don't have anyone. Yeah. You know? Um, And those are the people I want to reach. Yeah. Are you all right now? Are you actually okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Like yeah. all of the all of the things that have I'm moving have been about other people. You know, it's not self pity or anything. It's like the one about my mum and dad uh, and what they went through and and pain, even though they were skin and stuff. That's that's not about me that's about that's about them and just feeling empathy for them and knowing you know maybe in the dad now yeah. what i would do um and uh and then then at the end just thinking about that poor fucking lonely person who's watching this and thinking that's me i just <laughs> i just want to reach out of the speakers and go you know you're going to be all right take it easy and slow down and don't worry and and talk to someone try and you know find someone and I get you know the reason why I wanted to do this chat and 
these are the only interviews I've been doing, like the rest of the band are doing all the others, all the music stuff. Basically, I said, because I, I have to do all the proper radio and, and press and, you know, all the big stuff. And and uh, and and I wanted to do some podcast stuff because you reach at like a deep level, much deeper level, which is really crucial, I think. And, and, and um, but what we said is, because I've got so much of that stuff to do and because I've got a new baby and stuff, it's like, I'll just do the mental health ones. Um, so that's, that's what, um, that's what I've agreed to do when the rest of the band are doing the more musical ones, you know? Um, but that's the reason why I wanted to do it is because I want to reach those people so they don't feel like they're on their own. Yeah. How would you like them to get hold of you? That's just on Twitter. Um... Yeah, yeah. Like people can write to me on Twitter or DM me on Facebook or whatever. Um, but mostly it's like reaching out to someone who who's either an expert, because I'm not an expert, and all, all I can do is, is like say, I know how you feel, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, or, or to someone who knows them, who can help, who can be there for them, you know. Um, um, but yeah, I get people writing to me all the time, and I and I and I usually just I usually just they they usually say to me they usually write to me after they've done something. So they usually write to me this hey thanks to you I went and talked to this person and now I'm you know things are getting better. So I, I'm just able to say that's really great. You know I'm really happy for you and you know that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I don't think I've ever really had anyone write to me and go, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm going to kill myself. You know, that, that would be, you know, I'm not the expert to deal with that situation. You know, um, I, all I will say in that instance is I've found the Samaritans incredibly helpful, mm-hmm. um, which is why I, you know, I agreed to sort of uh, do stuff for them is that, um, you know, often these things come along in the wee small hours when no one else is around. Mm. And uh, but the Samaritans are there and, and just pick up the phone or text or or email them and um, and that first step you will feel so much relief just from having done it. You won't believe how much better you'll start to feel. And a lot quicker than you have any right to believe at the moment, you know, if you feel really bad. I was going to say it comes out in that because I was listening to that song, Terms of, of My Surrender, one of the yeah. singles. Um, it's quite incredible, actually, because as you were saying about the longevity of, of people in bands, you have sustained that level of that rousing quality and the emotive connection with people that's never been lost in your music even after all these years in some ways that's because you've you've stayed open to your vulnerability and, and not shied away from it so it shows <laughs> yeah yeah that one that one is the one song on the album that's about my last girlfriend before I met my wife um and it's sort of an understanding that she's always going to be in my head um, because I think in my own fucked up way, I did really love her, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't really, um, uh, I didn't have the tools I have now back then. 
you know, um, are still um, are still uh, living in my imaginary world rather than the real one. Um, and so there's some regret about that because, you know, if I'd have been all right back then, we, I'm almost hurt and we would have got married and had kids and done the whole thing, you know. But obviously, I'm in a really happy place now because I met someone else and I fell in love with her. And um, so it's like that song is sort of putting a uh, closing that book to open this one, which is why one of the reasons why it was the first single of the album is like this is the end of that chapter. Mm. And then the next song we released was the first song on the album, which is a sort of an ironic, death is not the end, it's sort of ironic because, you know, of course it is completely the end. But um, uh, I love that line that that comedian said, it's like, what happens after you die? And he says, loads of stuff, you're just not involved. (laughs) 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 Yep, (laughs) that's my take on it as well. yeah, and then and then we are it is like is like yeah, that's where I'm at. You know, I'm in, I'm in love and it's great and and uh, and and this album is that about that whole journey. So it's it's kind of um, I'm excited for people to hear it. Yeah, I'm excited too. I I, I really like the, the singles so far, and I'm excited to have the album and and you've got your tour coming up. Um, and beginning, what well, end of August, isn't it? And going into September. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Are, are people still able to get tickets for that if they want? Yeah. They can. Yeah. Yeah. The best, the best way to do that is to just go to embrace.co.uk and you'll find everything there. We've got a really great Patreon uh, where we have like loads of limited edition and, and, and unreleased stuff and. There's the album coming up and there's talk ups. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff on there. Yeah. The secret list it's called. The secret list, yeah. Yeah. I I like that again, the connection with your fans, the community spirit that you have, you're very involved in social media and Patreon and and everyone's bouncing off each other. It's a really nice feeling. Especially now, following the pandemic, I just think there's this feeling yeah. of everyone. It seems like there's a yearning for people to to have meaning and connect and, and talk. And I think so, and I think I think after being away from it so long, the band is like, you know, we can't wait to get out there, you know, and mm-hmm. and and not be scared anymore, you know. I know. And, and, and you know, it's been it's been a few years now since we've done a proper tour because of the pandemics. But it's like, you know, let's have a big party. Let's you know, shake the shackles. You know, it's, um, I'm excited. I'm really excited. Thank you so much. All right. I will dash off. Been really nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you. Yeah.